Hello, I'm Casper Melville. Usually when I introduce these podcasts, I welcome you to the New Humanist podcast, but not anymore. That's not because you're not welcome, far from it, but because we've changed the name to the Rationist Association podcast. The Rationist Association is the name of the 125-year-old charity which publishes New Humanist magazine. We wanted to give the charity more prominence, hence the name change. And we've also just launched a brand new Rationalist Association website, rationalist.org.uk, which replaces the old New Humanist site. Here you can find everything that was on the old site, plus all our new articles, blog posts, debates, and everything else that we do. So do pay us a visit. You might even want to join our new online Rationalist community, details on the site. So, welcome to this Rationalist Association podcast for March 2013. Coming up... We talked to the new president of the British Humanist Association, the very cool theoretical physicist, Jim Al-Khalili. And we hear from the humanist chaplain, Chris Steadman, on why he thinks atheists need to get involved with interfaith. Plus, as parents across the country find out if their attempts to fake religious belief have succeeded in getting their little angels into the local church school, yes, I'm looking at you, Mr Clegg, we have a very special clip of the brilliant comedian Stuart Lee explaining the lengths he went to get his child a place at the best school in Hackney. I should warn you, that bit contains some rather strong language and some jokes. Well, a lot of jokes, actually. But first, does Islam have an evolution problem? It does, according to Alam Shahar, who writes in the current issue of New Humanist about the difficulties some Muslim scientists face reconciling evolution with their faith. It's been widely shared online and seems to have touched a nerve. When Alam came in to see us, I asked him about the conference he attended which triggered the article. I attended the Have Muslims Misunderstood Evolution conference organised by the Dean Institute, uh, which is a relatively new organisation set up by a chap called Adam Dean, who I believe is a convert to Islam. And he claims that the Institute wants to, in his words, articulate faith not in spite of, but through scientific inquiry, critical thinking and logical reasoning, uh, with the aim of ultimately reviving intellectuality among modern Muslims, which is uh, quite a grand claim and uh, actually uh, you know I, I have to congratulate him for organizing this conference because I think talking about evolution is an important issue uh, for Muslims um, as was very clear from the, the, the massive attendance at the conference and from uh, the, the conversations I had with some of the attendees. How many people were there and who, who do you think they were just ju- judging by your what you observed? The event was held at the Institute of Education in a lecture theatre that I know holds about a thousand people. And it was about three quarters full, so about 750 people turned up, most of whom seemed to be quite young university students. And certainly of the ones I spoke to, they were all students studying science uh, at university or otherwise engaged in studies at university. What is it like, <coughs> do you think, for a young, a young a Muslim who also is a scientist and interested in science and wants to hold on to evolution. I mean, what does it feel like for them? There's plenty of evidence at the conference from both the speakers and from the attendees that I spoke to that the problem of reconciling evolution with what the Quran says is genuinely traumatic for, for, for many young Muslims and, and indeed old Muslims. The problem is that the evidence for evolution is just overwhelming if you're of a scientific bent. If you if you bother to look at the evidence for evolution and, and try to understand it it's it's very clear that something like evolution by natural selection is the way that life on earth came about and this is in flat contradiction to what the Quran says and unfortunately there's a problem with Islam in that 
a strict interpretation of it requires that you believe that the Quran is literally true and the Quran says that God created life pretty much instantaneously and this contradicts the theory of evolution. It might be quite difficult to believe that such a conflict can be genuinely traumatic but the evidence is from what, what I saw and from the emails and correspondence that lots of the speakers had re received that lots of Muslims genuinely struggle with this issue. So what kind of arguments did you get from the stage about ways in which it was possible to accommodate evolution within an Islamic framework? What was really interesting to me as a science teacher and as a science communicator was that the conference was partly a science communication conference where scientists stood up and told the audience about the evidence for evolution. And then they tried to explain how you could reconcile that evidence with what the Quran says. Well, the scientists were suggesting that ultimately you have to move away from a strictly literalist interpretation of the Quran. And it seems to me that they're right, that literalism is the barrier to more Muslims accepting the truth of evolution. But this is not an uncontroversial position, um, arguing for less literalism when it comes to Islam. What you, you, you got in your piece, you, you talk about there was a flavour of resistance to this, which could be quite, quite aggressive. Literalism in Christianity... Oh, uh, and, and Judaism is far less widespread than it is in Islam and in fact I, I think the overwhelming majority of Christians would not have a literal interpretation of the Bible as a central part of their faith. Unfortunately it seems to me that literalism is far more widespread in Islam and, and young Muslims are told that they must adhere to a literal interpretation of the Quran and if, if you're brought up being told that the Quran is literally true, you know, that's an idea that is going to stick with you and, and inevitably cause conflict when you come across ideas that challenge the literal truth of the Quran. J judging from this conference and, and the work that you did around this, this piece, what signs do you see that, we, that, that a, a, a less literalist Islam might be emerging? I mean, we know, for example, an analogue, let's say, of the Church of England, which had its own struggles with Darwin, you know, when the ideas came out, but has reach the peace with it and even the Catholic Church has managed to move. Can we look forward to Islam moving into a, in a direction where it's not controversial to believe in evolution and or to accept evolution and believe in the Quran at the same time? In the 21st century we live in a world where we're immersed in technology, we're immersed in the fruits of science. We know how successful science has been at explaining the world and it becomes untenable simply to believe in the literal truth of the Quran and I think it's inevitable that the Muslim world will move away from a literal interpretation of the Quran although unfortunately I think there'll be huge resistance to this change and it will take quite some time. Uh, lastly I just want to ask you about your conclusion you know as a, as a person who is an ex-Muslim and, and an atheist you didn't take the opportunity in your piece to say what some people might which is you know why don't these people just as it were wake up and stop if you know accept that evolution is true and stop being Muslims you don't say that um, wh why do you think it's important not to say that? I think how we believe and, and why we believe are not determined solely by uh, our rational intellects or how we think about things. I think feeling plays a great role in all these things and I think a lot of people feel strongly bound to the religions that they were brought up with and it's not a simple matter of thinking themselves out of it. So I've got no wish to encourage people to be unhappy or miserable. I think everybody has to arrive at a way of looking at the world that sits comfortably with them and I'm all for anything that allows more people to live more happily and if there are people out there who 
are struggling and are unhappy because they see a conflict between what they learn in science, what the, in fact some of them do as scientists, and what their religion tells them to believe, then I think these people need to be encouraged to arrive at a position where, where they're no longer unhappy. I know that sounds a bit kind of uh, hippie-ish, if you like, but you know, I think improving people's happiness by, by allowing them to reconcile their religious beliefs with what they learn in science is ultimately a good thing. And so, uh, to carry that to its sort of logical conclusion, you think that the work of these Islamic scientists who are trying to uh, reduce literalism and allow a way to believe in evolution and in Islam are, you know, people who are, who are doing valid work and, and are worthy of support? I, I think these scientists are doing invaluable work. I think they're fantastic. I think they're necessary um, because what they're doing is ultimately helping people to, 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 to be happier. I mean, I really saw evidence of that. I saw people who are being made miserable by what they see as a conflict between science and religion. And I think anything we can do to help them be less miserable and, and um, find a way to, to engage with science whilst maintaining uh, this faith that is so very important to them has to be a good thing. In 2013, the theoretical physicist Jim Al-Khalili took over from Polly Toynbee as the new president of the British Humanist Association. What can we expect from this new face for British humanism? When he came by our offices, I started by asking him for his working definition of humanism. It means humankind's fate and future is in its own hands. The reason why we strive for a better world and to be good is not because some old scripture or mythology tells me that I'll, I'll be rewarded if I'm good and punished if I'm bad. Being good because that's what defines my humanity, what defines me as a human. Anyone who wants to be good because they think they should be, but not because their religion tells them to be, for me is a humanist. You see, and that's where, you know, I see no issue with people of religious faith saying, hang on a minute, I'm a humanist as well. You know, in that I have faith in humankind, I have faith in humankind, and that's the common ground that you and that's you the can common find. ground that I can find, which is why I don't think it's an us and them. And you're keen to find common ground, is absolutely. That what, what you absolutely. imagine yeah, because, doing as the president? Because that's what I do every Christmas uh, around my mum and dad's house. You know, as as a family, you know, we find the common ground. We, we know, we 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 respect each other's views. Uh, it's not an us and them. And so I I I wouldn't be, you know, the the sort. Of person who would attack people with religious faith for the sake of it. I, what I see is, hang on a minute, you don't have uh, the right to say, you know, the, the only way to be ethical human being is if you have religious faith. To compare your appointment, as it were, or you, with where we've been in previous years, not just Polly Toynbee, who you're taking over from, there was, there's Anthony Grayling, who kind of came and went for various reasons, mm. and Dawkins, who is, remains a, a vice president or a senior figure within the... Yes. This. So, these three are all quite trenchant critics of religion. Yes. Um, some, some to the extreme of where they imply that religion is a kind of virus or a kind of stupidity uh, or, or a very uncompromising in certain mm. respects. But you're not like that. I, I would say that it's because we're winning the battle that we can afford not to be so strident, belligerent, you know, antagonistic, confrontational. I think it's because we're winning the battle that that's more and more people are seeing that humanism is such an inclusive thing. It's not an exclusive club. Uh, it's not a, s a sect. 
it's broader than that. And I think because that's changing, we can afford to be more inclusive. Uh, we don't have to be on, on the attack against people of religious faith because a lot of people, you know, people of religious faith on the whole are good people. They're good humanists, essentially, you know, and they're not stupid. So I think you're not going to, by antagonising and by attacking religion, I don't think you get very far. You, you, you just, you're just seen as another extremist lobby group. I'm not about everyone stopping their you know, religious belief, religious faith. For a lot of people it's vitally important. For a lot of people it does a lot of good. Why, why take that away? There is the argument of, yeah, but if it's wrong, and if it's you know a wrong word, well, lots of people have strange. Some people are Tory. Yeah, exactly. Lots people, lots of people have lots of different views. Fine, as long as it doesn't offend or affect me, you know, fine, you know, get on with it. I think what what I'd like to be able to do, and this is part of you know me being you know softer in in my approach uh, towards those of religious faith, but also coming from a background with a Christian mother and a Muslim father, it's a rather novel sort of outlook. I'd like to make make people understand that humanism is more than just this quaint group yeah. it's 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 about living within a, a system that is secular that allows there isn't any discrimination against people who don't have religion and that's you know there's a long battle there's a, there's a lot to be done and that's unfinished battle that that's absolutely be. unfinished And you can read my full interview with Jim Al-Khalili in the latest issue of New Humanist magazine and on our website, which is rationalist.org.uk. Next up, Interfaith. Faithiest, the new memoir from Chris Steadman, combines the story of how he moved from being an evangelical Christian to being an atheist, in part because his church would not accept his sexuality, with a powerful argument for why it's vital that atheists take part in interfaith work. We caught up with Chris recently over Skype to find out more. We started by asking Chris how he came to his faith and then lost it. So I grew up in a non-religious household. Um, really, we were more irreligious than anything. I didn't hear the word God growing up, but I didn't hear the word atheist either. Um, but when I was around 11 years old, I became a born-again Christian, a rather fundamentalist one. And there were sort of two primary reasons why um, that happened. The first is about a year prior to my conversion, I started reading books like Roots and Hiroshima and The Diary of Anne Frank. These were books that not only increased my awareness of the injustice and suffering that has been perpetuated throughout human history, but it told the story of those of the people who um, experienced those atrocities. And so, as a young boy, I was looking for a way of making sense of of the fact that I lived in a world where those things could occur, where people would do those kinds of things to one another. And then the second thing is that a year later, my parents divorced, and my family dynamic changed almost overnight. And around that time, some friends invited me to go to a youth group and um, a, a sort of religious um, after-school program. And I was very impressed by the community because they really seemed to just uh, welcome everybody. And at that time in my life, I was looking for a community. I was looking for some stability in light of my sort of family structure changes and I was looking for answers to these questions about justice and suffering, and they provided, you know, sort of straightforward, easy answers. Um, but I shortly realized, or shortly thereafter, I realized I was gay. And this community was very anti-gay. 
And so um, I really struggled with those things for a number of years. I eventually moved into more progressive Christianity after just some some really um, really low and difficult years of um, of you know really a lot of self loathing because of the the beliefs that um, that were perpetuated within that community about homosexuality. But I moved into more progressive Christian circles after an intervention from my mother went on to college to study religion, and that's where I stopped believing, you know, in part because of my academic studies of religion, but mostly because my Christian professors encouraged me to take a critical look at my own beliefs. They asked me to um, think about what I believed and why, uh, what the foundation was for my beliefs, and in particular, they encouraged me to look at my my conversion. And it was the, at that time that I realized that I had converted because I was looking for community and because I was looking for a way to make sense of injustice, and that the sort of metaphysical claims of Christianity had never really made as much sense to me. You know, I grew up without an image of God, and so I kind of just took on the idea of God as if it were a package deal. You know, if you want these other things, if you want community and you want to, um, you know, work for a more just world, you have to believe in God. When I realized that wasn't so, I decided I was an atheist. But despite his bad experiences with religion, Stedman has become a strong advocate of atheists getting involved in interfaith dialogue with believers. Why is that, we asked him. Surely interfaith carries all kinds of connotations that would make atheists uncomfortable. I think first of all, the, the, the term interfaith is an understandably um, sort of confusing one, and I, I understand a lot of the resistance to it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I talk about in Faithiest is I actually sort of address this criticism head on because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very legitimate one. You know, atheism isn't a faith. And if atheists participating in interfaith programs contributes to the idea that it is, then that is a potentially harmful thing. Whenever I go to participate in an interfaith event, I try to be very clear about what atheism is and what atheism isn't. And similarly, I try to be clear about what humanism is and what humanism isn't. And I think it's actually a really good opportunity, a good context for, for clarifying a lot of the misconceptions around atheism, because there are a lot of people who do see atheism as a faith. And if we're not involved in those programs, um, those folks don't have an opportunity to actually learn more about atheism and humanism. So I, for example, I um, often go to these... Uh, conferences that happen several times a year that are put on by Interfaith Youth Corps, which is a really um, active and, and prominent interfaith organization in the United States. And um, I'll usually go speak at the conference, but I'll also do a few workshops for people who are there on atheism and humanism. Those workshops are always very full because um, these people are, uh, are really interested in learning more about atheism and humanism because many of them have had very few encounters with atheists or um, humanists, many of them who have had encounters have had really negative ones. And so they're looking to learn more and they're looking to, you know, be able to expand their vocabulary so that they can have better conversations with atheists. You know, I think that the language of interfaith is imperfect, but if atheists are involved, I believe that the language will change as atheists continue to be more involved. I've seen this happen with um, Interfaith Youth Corps. Again, this is an organization that I used to work for. Um, when I started working there, a lot of the language was very religious-centric. And now, whenever they're talking about the work they do, they always specifically call out the non-religious and say, you know, this is work that brings 
young people of different religious and non-religious backgrounds together. And so I think that, you know, by participating, we have the chance to change that language. And if somebody has a better word um, than, than interfaith, I, you know, I'd love to hear it. If this isn't an idea that whose time has come, it's an idea whose time is coming. We're, we're at least beginning to have more of a conversation about these things. And, um, you know, if, if I could accomplish anything with this book, it, you know, that's probably um, what I would hope for is, is that people will be having more conversations about these things. And I didn't set out to write the, the sort of ultimate statement on atheism and interfaith work. I, I, I'm excited to see more people putting their ideas, their stories, their perspectives out into the, into the discussion. And I welcome people challenging my ideas and coming up with better ones. That interview with Chris Steadman was conducted for us by Rory Fenton, whose review of Chris Steadman's book, Faithiest, you can read in the current issue of New Humanist. And finally, this is the season when all across the country, eager parents and children are finding out if they got the place at the school of their choice. Some parents will have gone to extraordinary lengths to try and secure a place in their top local school. Some atheists, apparently, have even been faking religion to try and get into church schools. But how far would you go? Not, I hope, as far as the comedian Stuart Lee, at least according to what he told the audience of our annual Christmas benefit gigs back in 2010. It's very stressful, isn't it, living in the city? Around us, you know, everyone worries about schools. That's the thing people worry about, schools, you know, getting, getting a kid in a good school. And, you know, it's, it's amazing what people do. There's people uh, faking their addresses to try and get in the catchment of every good school. There's people faking baptism certificates to try and get in the Catholic schools. There's people tearing up their baptism certificates so their kids don't have to go to the Catholic school. There's people using pedometers to measure the exact distance to the school from their door. There's people bribing crows to fly more direct distances. <laughs> it's out of control. And I just thought, there's one school we wanted to get into and I just couldn't work out how to get the kid in. And I was talking to one of the other dads at uh, Playgroup uh, and, it, and it turns out that what you have to do, the only way you can get into this one school near us, it's just sort of been understood over the last 10, 15 years, is if your wife sleeps with the, with the chairman of the governors. I know, it's weird, isn't it? But it's sort of like... People have just kind of accepted it, that it would happen. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it's right, but um, I think if you're married to someone, that should be the person that you have sex with mainly. You know, I don't... <laughs> but what can you do? You know, that's what's... <laughs> that's what's happened, you know, what can you do? So I drove around there anyway, and... Um, guy's house and he came out and it was very you know business-like about it and I went and I went um, well I went to the pub and tried to do the crossword but I couldn't concentrate on it and um, then I went back and picked her up later and you know didn't really talk about it you know it didn't matter I suppose I don't think there's any need to film it though and put it on the internet <laughs> website called Ofsted Sluts. You know. <laughs> They're not sluts, are they? They're just women that care about the kids' future, you know. I didn't know it was up there. My brother-in-law saw it. <laughs> Said she was waving. 
What can you do, though? You know, what can you do? I mean, it's... I don't agree with it, you know. I don't agree with it, but it's... It's, um... It's a kid's future, isn't it? And you can't... You can't compromise a kid's future because of your principles, you know. <laughs> what can you do? The weird thing is, it doesn't even guarantee them a place. You know, it's like, uh, I said to the guy, when will that be so? And he said, well, it doesn't guarantee a place. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, we'll look at the footage and your, your wife's performance will be rigorously and accurately assessed. And that will... I said, what do you mean accurately? How do you accurately assess that? He said, I'll be using a pedometer. Stuart Lee was performing at our annual benefit gig, Nine Lessons and Carols for Godless People, at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London in 2010. You can buy a 20-track CD of the show, including a full 10 minutes of Stuart Lee, from gofasterstripe.com. That's all for now. There's just time for me to remind you to visit our new website, rationalist.org.uk, where you can join the more than 14,000 founder members of our Rationalist online community. Till next time, I've been Casper Melville. Goodbye. <laughs>